orders of magnitude more political prisoners in Russia today mm -hmm. than they had at the height of the Cold War. They have more people in their internal security services than they have in their armed forces still, right? But that's not a sign of strength either, mm -hmm. right? So I think there's this tendency these days, which I think is self-destructive, to disconnect what you're doing militarily from what you're trying to achieve politically. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome to the Breakline Arena. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. Today, I am delighted to share a fireside chat with H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is also a fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute and a lecturer at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. General McMaster served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army for 34 years. He retired as a lieutenant general in June 2018, after also serving as the 25th assistant to the U.S. president for the Department of National Security Affairs. He is author of the best-selling books, Battlegrounds, and dereliction of duty. His many essays, articles, and book reviews on leadership, history, and the future of warfare have appeared in The Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, National Review, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. General McMaster is also the host of a podcast called Battlegrounds and is a regular on Goodfellows, both of which are produced by the Hoover Institution. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks for joining us. So General McMaster, as National Security Advisor, your first step was to restore strategic competence. You wrote about this in your book, Battlegrounds, and this involved knowing your adversary as well as yourself. And you had said that we had lost sight of something with respect to ourselves and our adversaries in the decades preceding your appointment. Can you talk to us about what that was? What had we forgotten and the overarching steps that you took to help us close those gaps? Well, thanks, Stephanie. And thanks for everything Breakline does and for the privilege of being with everybody here. You know, I, I thought across the 1990s and into the 2000s that we had lost our strategic competence based on fundamentally flawed assumptions about the post-Cold War period. And I think there were three overlapping assumptions that we bought into and then held on to for far too long. And the first of those was that an arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. And of course, I'd, I'd had the opportunity to watch the wall come down or the, you know, the fence come down between East and West Germany in 1989. We'd won the Cold War, so that bolstered our confidence. And then shortly after that, we deployed to Saudi Arabia and then attacked into Iraq and to, and to Kuwait and had a lopsided victory in, in Desert Storm over the fourth largest army in the world. And this ushered in a period of overconfidence, and maybe even with a touch of hubris, 
associated with with these assumptions. The sense that a great power competition, great power rivalry was a relic of the past. Mm-hmm. And and so ideological competition was over, great power competition was over. And the third assumption was that our military prowess, mainly our technological military prowess, would guarantee our security way into the future. And in the 1990s, I mean, some of you might remember this, you know, there was this lexicon in this area of defense transformation and concepts of future war, you know, everything was dominance, spectrum dominance, you know, dominant battle space knowledge. We assumed that we would be able to conduct rapid, decisive operations, right? And these are things that really briefed well, you know, I mean, who's going to be against that? Are you for ponderous, indecisive operations, you know? So these were kind of catchphrases and PowerPoint deep briefings that lulled us into a complacency. And, and I think we lost our competitive advantages in many ways and also just our ability to think clearly we became very Mm self-referential and didn't acknowledge the agency and the authorship over the future that others enjoyed including our our rivals adversaries and and enemies and so when i came into the job quite unexpectedly in february of 2017 i thought hey this is a great opportunity to help a new president certainly a disruptive president you know so disruptive he wound up disrupting himself even but but he was disruptive president because a lot of things in washington needs to be disrupted I mean, in terms of those assumptions that kind of had influenced our policies across the board you know from china to russia to iran to the middle east broadly to the war in afghanistan mm-hmm. can you talk to us bring us up to present day it's been several years since you were serving in the white house can you talk to us about how the strategic threats have shifted since you were serving well i think the trajectory was pretty clear i mean you know back then what we did is actually examined the assumptions on which previous policies were based mm-hmm. and i think one of the reasons we had fundamentally flawed strategies in place is because a lot of these policies are underpinned by implicit flawed assumptions and because they're implicit they never really get challenged you know so for example on north korea which was kind of you know a serious threat at the time and in the previous year under president obama's last year they had fired more missiles had more provocations than ever before a fleeting moment of civility between between uh, president obama and and president trump said hey uh, let me tell you this is going to be your biggest problem initially so we were, we were focused on that the team was focused on it before i got there and what we did is we examined really the previous approaches to that problem the problem of the danger that north korea poses broadly but the also the, the more specific danger of their pursuit of the most destructive weapons on earth and missile systems and everything else and what we determined is policies were based on one of two flawed assumptions one assumption that hey you know north korea is just an impossible state right it's going to collapse you know uh, especially after kim jong-un came in they're like hey this guy really i mean he's going to be able to hold on, on to power and then the other assumption was that through kind of a sunshine policy right and and an opening up to north korea that the regime would see the error of its ways and say wow you know we could be more like south korea you know approaches neglected were like as in other cases the ideology and the emotions that drive and constrain the other and in this case the juche ideology of north korea you know the the belief that deprivation is a virtue and the brainwashing the population to believe that it's a sign of your your racial purity and superiority to even south koreans right and so um we said okay well let's not policies that are based on those flawed assumptions and let's test something new right let's test the thesis that kim jong-un might be able to be convinced that he's safer without nuclear weapons than he is with them and this was the sort of the foundation of of the maximum pressure approach toward north korea 
We did the same with China, which was the next effort. And we did all of this challenging in the context of what we call, which is a mouthful, a principal small group framing session. And I determined from my experience in Vietnam that people didn't take enough time to think about the problem, right? They were always, hey, what do we do? Well, about what? What are our objectives? You know, how do we frame it? And so what we did is we put this with this session in place and we had a discussion around a five-page paper that laid out what we saw as the nature of the challenge, what vital interests were at stake. Then we viewed that challenge through the lens of the vital interest, proposed an overarching goal and more specific objectives. And then the assumptions on you should be based, making them explicit. Often these were 180 degrees out of the assumptions, the implicit assumptions to underpin previous policies. And then we listed the obstacles to progress, like what's impeding us from getting to our goals and objectives. And then what are the opportunities we could exploit? Opportunities through the, we can exploit through the integration of all elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners. And when we convened the cabinet in this, this was the principals committee of the National Security Council, we, nobody was allowed to talk about what we're going to do. Do you agree with this framing? What are your ideas about how we should change it? Do we have it right? And then after that first part of the meeting, then we said, okay, now what are your ideas about how to integrate elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners to overcome the obstacles, take advantage of the opportunities? Then you got something in Washington that really, I don't think hardly ever happens, which is top-down guidance, right? The processes that typically run in national security decision-making and policy-making are almost bottom-up. And so you have people who meet at like the assistant secretary level, and they don't frame it first. They're like, Iran, you know, discuss. And then they have these, you know, the I think brainstorming is kind of overrated, you know, if there's not kind of a structure to the discussion, right? and a common understanding to begin with. And so you get over time, and as these papers percolate up to the principal's level, you get satisficing behavior, lowest common denominator. And by the time it gets to the principal's, what I would call policy pablo, mm -hmm. meaningless drivel, you know? So we wanted to reverse that. And then the policy coordinating committee was listening in an overflow group. And they're actually getting, you know, what we call it, this is, you know, in the military, this is called a mission analysis briefing, basically. And then at the end of that, you get commander's guidance, and then the staff can start getting after development forces of action. So that's what we did. And I think it, it helped across the board in these policies. And it also helped in framing a national security strategy to integrate these various policies towards particular regions or challenges like challenges in space or to health security or in, in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. so, General, in your book, Battlegrounds, you talk about seven strategic threats to the U.S., one of which is Russia, which is obviously very timely today. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about it. You wrote in your book, which I highly recommend to everyone listening. Page Turner. Page Turner. <laughs> it is, people. So you wrote, Soviet diplomacy depends upon the spiritual exhaustion of the Western people. And you go on to describe the tools that Putin's regime uses, including deniability and disinformation, which Americans are becoming more and more familiar with. And those tools pit Americans against each other. We saw it in the 2016 election. We've seen it in many, many other countries as well. Right. How do we reclaim that shared sense of identity that we lost? Yeah. Wow, what a great question. I mean, I, I think we all have a role in doing that. And I think what we've seen is this severe polarization. Everybody kind of acknowledges it in our society that has us pitted against each other. And and I think of it in terms of almost centripetal forces that draw from both extremes, the far left, whatever, wherever you want to define that, and the far right. And I think that there are a number of 
for this. I think one of the reasons is that large numbers of Americans feel disenfranchised, mm. feel powerless, feel like the system let them behind or that they're not bought into our, our democratic system, our free market economic system. And I think that goes back to transitions in the global economy in the 90s, and especially after China's entry in the WTO in, in 2001. You remember when Ross Perot, you got, everybody here is too young to remember, but he ran for president, you know. You remember? You remember that? Oh, yeah, that's right. Ross Perot Jr. is now, and he was too. Yeah, and, and exactly. And, you know, a really extraordinary person. But remember, NAFTA was under big debate back then, what became the USMCA later. It's another whole story. Wow. Okay, so, but NAFTA... And during the during the election, he called it the great sucking sound. Remember, he had that voice. You know, it's going to be a great sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico. Well, there was a great sucking sound, but it was to China, right? And and so you know, big uh, large communities in the U.S. were left behind by the transition, and were disenfranchised by that. Then you had, I think, on top of that, you know, you had some the, you know the financial crisis, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. This all occurs now with the advent and explosion of social media and social media algorithms that that get you know try to get more and more advertising dollars by getting more and more clicks and getting those clicks by showing more and more extreme content that's consistent with people's predilection, the conspiracy theories they, that they might adhere to, and then on top of that, throw in like an opioid epidemic, mm -hmm. right? And then I think what we see now is the consequence of what has happened in the academy, actually, since maybe at least the end of the Vietnam War, but accelerating maybe in, in the recent years, of the capture of humanities departments by, I would call it like the self-loathing far left. Mm. I mean, I know that sounds kind of mean, you know, but I think they are. And that influence has always been in academia, right? I mean, go back to William Appam Appam Williams or, you know, I mean, in the 1920s and 30s. And this was a sort of a Marxist approach to history, which has always been a, an approach to history of impersonal forces, of organizing all the problems you see in the world through the lens of, of oppressor and oppressed. Mm -hmm. And also this belief that the system is against you. It's a diminution of individual agency. And associated with that are various critical theories, right? Postmodernist theories associated with, you know, the truth is unknowable, right? Or various critical theories, you know, that that argue that everything is, is understood based on the legacy of colonialism, for example. And again, oppressed oppressor, and that the whole system's against you, and you need, and it, it, there's no hope to tear down the system. And so this is associated with the tendency now of to put the words institutional and structural in front of every problem, you know, racism, sexism, you, you name it. It's institutional, it's structural. And I think what that does is it robs people of agency. Mm -hmm. And it also leaves people with a toxic combination of anger and resignation. And so I think what we can do is we can kind of the left-leaning philosopher Richard Rorty said, pride is to nations as self-respect is to individuals, a necessary ingredient for self-improvement. Mm. And I think what you have today is people who view even U.S. history through the lens of these kind of reified neo-Marxist philosophies basically make the argument like the 1619 Project, like, you know, yeah, America was founded to preserve slavery, and then founded on principles that ultimately made that criminal institution unsustainable, right? Then and And I think that we should learn about the great successes and disappointments of our history, right? We should recognize, you know, we fought our most destructive war in history to emancipate 6 million of our fellow Americans. But then we also have to learn about the failure of Reconstruction, the rise of Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow in the South, and the preservation of de jure period 
until the civil rights movement. Hey, let's celebrate what was achieved there with the end of de jure segregation and equality of opportunity, but recognize that de facto inequality of opportunity still exists. So we can do something about that, right? I mean, we all know that the zip code into which one is born determines the number of obstacles somebody has to overcome before they, you know, they take advantage of the great promise of America. So, okay, do something about that. You know, volunteer at your Boys and Girls Club. Put pressure on your local governments to not try to rename, you know, Abraham Lincoln High School, where you're arguing to not teach your children during the pandemic. I mean, that was crazy. They got voted out, right? I mean, the school board in San Francisco. So I think we have to exercise agency and then teach our young people to exercise agency. But I think the manipulation of history is a, is a big problem. Mm-hmm. The manipulation of history was used by, you know, white supremacists to portray in history books that slavery was benign, right? That the Civil War was fought over, you know, states' rights, right? Not to preserve slavery. And so what we see now is a manipulation of history to rob us of our self-respect, I think. And these philosophies that teach people, hey, judge the person next to you based on their identity category. That's how you should judge them, of victimhood and, and oppressed. That's how you judge them, not by what's in their heart or their soul or in our military by their courage, their toughness, their sense of honor, right? Don't do that. And you know what that does? All of that kind of identity politics and various critical theories, it feeds the far right, right? Mm -hmm. It feeds the Tucker Carlson's and it feeds the others, even more extreme nutcases, who then are able to amplify old forms of bigotry and racism and sexism. And let's just stop that and say, hey, both of you are crazy, (laughs) nutty. We believe in our common humanity. We believe in our common identity as Americans. We believe in rule of law and our democratic systems. And if we don't like them, that we can reform them. You know, So I think we can all do something about that. We can't wait for the class maybe to do it, but we could put pressure on them. Stop compromising our principles. Stop undercutting our democratic institutions to score partisan points. Whether you're Nancy Pelosi in 2016 or in a, in a more extreme case, because he was actually from the, the chief executive position inciting an assault on the first branch of government, you know, Donald Trump in, in uh, 2020, mm-hmm. 2021. So, you know, I, I think we have a lot of work to do. There are good leaders across, you know, the public and private sector, but we all have a stake in it. I think we all have to do our job. So like what we, what we try to do here at Hoover, what I try to do as part of Hoover is to, to have meaningful, respectful discussions about the most significant challenges and opportunities we face internationally mm-hmm. as a way to bring people together for those respectful discussions and to start like, hey, what can we agree on mm-hmm. first? Because if we just focused on that, we could get a lot done to him. You know, mm-hmm. it is, it has been, there's a period of historical record on it. You know, I mean, nobody's trying to immigrate to China, to Russia. It's one of our biggest competitive advantages. So I mean, why would we not want to do immigration reform, mm-hmm. you know, and to provide a path a legal, for, for legal immigration? And then what if we opened 40 consulates in the Western Hemisphere today? And so we're going to grant X number of visas every week from this consulate. They'd be lining up at the consulates. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They'd be paying fees for those visas. And the remittances they would send back would help solve some of the problems in in those countries. And we would get tax money from it. And it would more than pay for itself. And why the hell aren't we doing it? I mean, so there's so many things that I think we could do that if we just focus on what we agree on is the first step. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Coming back to Russia, you host a podcast and it's also called Battlegrounds. Highly recommend this to everyone listening. And you recently interviewed John Sullivan, who's the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, and you were asking him about Vladimir Putin. 
And he was describing Putin as a man with no off-ramp and also a man with no conscience in terms of the number of Russian lives lost, the number of Ukrainian lives lost, that he has an enormous appetite for death and destruction. And he does not want to negotiate and support in some quarters within the political class flagging for supporting Ukraine. What do you think that their prospects are for winning the war or at least coming out of it in peaceful terms that they can agree with? Well, the prospects are are kind of dim at the moment, but actually they're pretty dim on the Russian side as well. Mm. Right. And, you know, I think about Grant at Fort Donaldson, you know, it's, it looks really like a hellish, terrible thing. The wounded He's in the rear of his, of his army. And he's riding to get to the front. And of course, you've seen the wounded come back. It seems kind of chaotic. And he thinks, man, we I, I think our lines are broken. We probably lost this fight. He gets to the front. General Sherman is there. And he says, hey, we're going to defeat them. We're going to win. Because the other side was in worse shape, you know. And so it's important to understand that war is a contest of wills. Mm-hmm. and But also in this kind of situation. And we've been trickling in these capabilities to the Ukrainians. I think it's past time to give them the full range of capabilities they need and and sufficient size and number for them to do two things militarily. One is to protect their population and their critical infrastructure from the continued onslaught by the Russians. The Russians are fielding an additional 40,000 drones a month. Ukraine's supporting about 20,000. So there's a gap. And also uh, puts places a premium on their long-range precision strike capabilities because in these cases with the long-range missiles, which... We think Russia's building up and husbanding for a major onslaught here pretty soon, probably, as the winter uh, comes in, is that you need to be able to kill the archer as well as shoot down the arrows, mm-hmm. you know? So that range of capabilities to protect themselves. And then the second is for them to be able to conduct a sustained offensive operation in, since 2014. And mm-hmm. people say, well, gosh, that's could they really do that? Well, I mean, maybe they could. Maybe they will be able to. Maybe they won't be able to do all of it. But if you only give them 31 tanks, really? 31 tanks, you know, or, you know, in debate, do they really need protected mobility? Over 90% of Ukraine's casualties come from shrapnel wounds in unarmored vehicles. Mm-hmm. When we drug our feet on providing those capabilities, they have, you know, kilometers of minefields. They need more engineering and mobility assets, you know. So why are we trickling it in? I don't understand it. And I do think that there is a point at which Russian morale collapses, mm-hmm. you know. You see that in some of these forces now, the old VDB forces or the airborne forces are, are they're wiped out. They're forming a new one, but that's not gonna, they're not going to have the training and the level of competence. In the recent offensive, just in the past couple of weeks, there were days where they were having 750 casualties, mm-hmm. you know, in a day. They, I don't think they can sustain it. And you, know, you saw the turbulence in their command. I mean, an ex-hot dog salesman, mm-hmm. an ex-con marched on Moscow shot down six rate aircraft, you know, and that's not a sign of strength. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Putin appears strong on the outside, right? But of course, they only have to be stronger than any of the organized opposition. But in Russia, also, you're seeing some of the protests beginning a little bit of them. But I can't be too optimistic, right? They have orders of magnitude more political prisoners in Russia today mm-hmm. than they had at the height of the Cold War. They have more people in their internal security services than they have in their armed forces still, right? But that's not a sign of strength either, mm. right? So I think there's this tendency these days, which I think is self-destructive, to disconnect what you're doing militarily from what you're trying to achieve politically. Mm-hmm. Do you think there could be an acceptable outcome in Ukraine 
through a negotiated settlement now for all the reasons you mentioned that John mentioned? Mm-hmm. I mean, Putin's not going to agree to anything except a, a situation that is completely unacceptable to the Ukrainian people after they kidnapped their children, after they murdered so many people. After I mean, it, you know, and so war does really require winning. And winning means defeated. Think about the nonsense we heard about Afghanistan for years. We just want to bring this war to a responsible end. I used to box, you know, when I was a bit thinner. Didn't box in this weight class, thank God. But I never got into the ring and thought, you know, I just want to bring this to a responsible end. Because you know what? I would have gotten my ass kicked. Ass kicked. So, so you know, and then you kept hearing, like, oh, there's no military solution in Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban came up with one. So I, I just think... If you have a political ed, which is a free and independent and viable Ukrainian state, right, then you have to achieve militarily what's necessary to get to that political outcome. Mm-hmm. And then you have to provide that the support to Ukraine that's sufficient to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to move the conversation to China. And John Mural, I'm looking at you. John is a China expert. John up here, Josh. But in your book, you you talked about how Chinese cyber espionage is responsible for what you described as the greatest transfer of wealth in history. You talked yeah. about, I think, it's I, quoted, a, I quoted the former NSA. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. And I mean, to the tune of one hundred and six billion in just one year yeah. alone. And you also share that U.S. capital is accelerating the CCP's efforts to surpass the U.S. in a range of critical emerging technologies, including. You talked about how U.S. venture capital investment in Chinese AI companies exceeded that of U.S. venture capital investment in U.S. companies. And at the same time, you note that U.S. capital is therefore driving CCP policies through, you know, through state-owned businesses. But and, the- and then our dumb money flows, right? Our dumb money flows are in, in large measure the, the scaffolding that holds up their statist economic model so they can weaponize it against us. Yes, yes. But then you also talk about the simultaneous on the part of some U.S. companies to do business with the U.S. government and other democratic governments around the world. And you said companies that reject opportunities to work with the United States while at the same time enabling authoritarian regimes to repress their own people may not realize the dangers they promote. Can you talk a little bit about this tendency that we're seeing to fund the CCP indirectly? to work with U.S.-based companies and what you see as the dangers? Well, I, you know, I think it's, I hope it's ignorance, mainly. It's avarice, yeah. for sure, you know, and it's it's wanting to get these great returns in China, which are, for business deals especially, they're ephemeral, you know, because what you're supposed to get in the long run never really happens, right? If you want to go into production in China, you have to uh, do this as a joint venture or transfer your technology uh, to a Chinese company, which then steals it all from you, and then that company or another champion designated by the Chinese government receives subsidies to produce what you are producing at an artificially low cost as they close you out of their market and then dump that equipment, hardware, wherever it is on the international market and drive you out of business. You know? So it doesn't make sense in, in a long-term run. And I think that what we have to do at this stage, at least take a Hippocratic oath, right? In three areas, in every boardroom in America, and that oath should be, did you know, hurt or harm in three ways. Don't help the PLA develop the weapons they're going to use to kill your children and grandchildren. Because we're doing that. I mean, we're, we actually have done that. A uh, $700 million U.S. investment across multiple firms, but two main firms in the U.S. of a Chinese company that does AI called Four Paradigm. In 2000, that company now does all the battlefield artificial intelligence for the people's liberation art. 
congratulations. I won't name them, but you can imagine which ones they are. I think we ought to rate our VC firms with little PRC flags, you know, mm-hmm. one to five. So everybody knows uh, who they're supporting. The second is don't help them perfect their technologically enabled Orwellian police state or commit genocide or to use slave labor. It's in Hick vision since time. Hey, congratulations. I mean, you enable genocide. You know, I'm sure that wasn't the, the goal back then, but that's what happened. I mean, I think genocide should maybe be an ESG issue. I don't know. And then third is don't jeopardize the long-term viability of your company in exchange for short-term profits and returns in China, you know, which, you know, Tesla's doing now. But any number of battery manufacturers and solar panel manufacturers and wind turbine manufacturers, do you think it's not going to happen again? Of course it is. And if you look at what Xi Jinping is doing, he's doubling down on state-owned enterprises rather than so-called private sector. He's cracked down on the tech sector, the education sector, healthcare is, is happening now. Because, you know, what does he care about? He care about extending and tightening the party's exclusive grip on power. And it's a reaction to his fear of losing control and also his pursuit of national rejuvenation at our ex- expense, which is, as he calls it and called it in San Francisco, right? And called it in his speech in, in October of 2017 and has said it many times, the new era of international relations and the community of common destiny for all mankind. I mean, if that, if that doesn't make you nervous, you know what I'm saying? I mean, how Orwellian can you get, right? And we have useful idiots in the United States. I mean, $1,000 to have dinner with him and give him a standing ovation. They should be ashamed of themselves. This is Henry Ford in 1939. This is Joe Kennedy, 1939. I mean, it's the same situation. So I, I think it's a, it's a moral and ethical issue. It's an issue of patriotism, but also just common sense. Mm-hmm. It is an ESG and a humanitarian issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move to the Middle East. You fought wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Your daughter and your son-in-law have also deployed to those same conflicts. And you wrote really poignantly in the book about the movement within the Trump administration to end endless wars, despite the fact that the strategy announced in 2017 was working. And you said withdrawing under a deal with the Taliban was likely far worse. Have the ensuing years since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? You know, it's a, it's a catastrophe for the Afghan people. You know, I, I mean, j- just think about the astounding hypocrisy of, I'll just name names because, because I'm just stating facts. Samantha Power, others in the in the administration, extolling human rights and women's rights, right? Directing the ambassador in Kabul to fly the pride flag over our embassy just two months before we withdraw and consign all of the Afghan population to hell, right? So... It's really gut-wrenching from a humanitarian perspective and the refugee crisis that has ensued and the unspeakable suffering that's occurred and victimization of Afghans on the part of the of the Taliban. But also, it's a major security problem associated with you know, the Taliban and their support for other jihadist terrorist organizations. I mean, think about what two administrations told us, right? The end of the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Hey, the their power, they're different from before. They're going to have more respect for women's rights, right? And there's a bold line between them, you know, and other terrorist organizations. They, they portray them like this romantic rural movement, you know, that kind of emerged organically from, you know, from the Hindu Kush, right? No, this is a transnational terrorist organization that formed, trained by Al-Qaeda and Pakistan's ISI with donors from the Gulf. That's what they are. And they share resources so-called enemy ISIS, that you know, the attack that, that killed our 19 servicemen and women, 
that was done with full knowledge by the Taliban. Absolutely. They got through like eight Taliban checkpoints, right? Killed our servicemen and women with zero Taliban casualties. I mean, is that just a coincidence? And then, of course, you have, you know, we, we killed Zawahiri living in the Minister of Interior's house. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. How much more do you need to know? The brigade that took over the Kabul airport that was all kitted out with night vision goggles and everything else, trained by the Pakistanis and part of and, and, and an Al-Qaeda brigade, right? And so we have to just end the self-delusion about it. And of course, we're paying a huge geostrategic geopolitical price for it, man. I mean, uh, you know, the shame, the stain of, of August 2021, there's a direct line between that and the reinvasion of, of Ukraine in February of 2022. Mm-hmm. August 2021 is when Putin wrote his long essay. You remember, Ukraine's not even a thing. There are Nazis there, you know, all that. That's not a coincidence that it happened at the same time. And then the conclusion was, hey, the West is done. Read the statement between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in, in February, early February of 2022, right before the invasion, reinvasion of Ukraine. The message is, you're over. It's the new era of international relations. We're in charge now. Get used to it. And so I think we portrayed extraordinary weakness. We wonder, like, why is India, Russia? After Afghanistan, they, they, they said, who's got our back? Not the United States. Right, they've got China bludgeoning their soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier. They've got a hostile Pakistan on their border, and now they're not going to hedge with Russia because we're going to support them. They, I mean, they didn't believe that. Why are the Emiratis and the Saudis accommodating the the Chinese and the Russians? Why are they up for Russia playing the role of arsonist and fireman in Syria and enabling the the serial episodes of mass homicide there? Because we look weak to them, you know, and and that all goes back to Afghanistan, I believe. And, you know, what was the alternative? People say, well, you know, the alternative was about $22 billion a year to support the Afghans who were bearing the brunt of that fight. And then people will say, well, you know, we were failing because Afghanistan wasn't Denmark. I mean, like, Afghanistan doesn't need to be Denmark. It just needs to be Afghanistan with, you know, a government that is hostile to jihadist terrorists and is on a gradual path of of strengthening over, over time. It was still going to be violent. It was still going to be certainly imperfect. But I would talk to these officials in the Trump administration, especially when Secretary Pompeo was on his way to sign the surrender document in February of 2020, and they would complain about Ashraf Ghani. I'm like, hey, do you prefer Haibatullah Akinzada? You know? So I, I just think, for, and the ramifications we're still seeing in these three areas, the humanitarian, the security threat from jihadist terrorists, you know, and, and ISIS-type groups. But then also the geopolitical ramifications. I mean, who's moved into that void in Afghanistan, China, and Iran, you know, in a huge way. Mm -hmm. You also on your podcast, you interviewed an Afghan general, Sami Sadat, and it was an emotional interview between the two of you both grieving the withdrawal and which you also described as a self-delusion. And the two of you talked about the mistaken assumption that terrorism will remain constricted to any region or border. You said crises in the Middle East do not stay there. And I think one issue that factored into the withdrawal from Afghanistan from the American perspective was, why should we care? Why yeah. should we still be there? Can you help us understand sure. why Americans need to care about this? Yeah, I think the, the fundamental reason and the one that I think is most easy. And actually, if you want to really see the arguments, go back to Donald Trump's August 2017 speech on his Afghanistan policy, which he abandoned after various Iago figures were in his ear, like from you know the neo-isolationists like Rand Paul, from the neo-isolationists to the insane alt-right Bannon people who came back in and curried favor with him again. So, you know, I, I should now, and, and, the, and the main point was that 
Afghanistan is a modern day frontier between barbarism and civilization. And Afghans were bearing the brunt of the fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and about 28 other U.S. designated terrorist organizations are on, on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Look what's going on in Pakistan right now. I mean, it's going to get worse. They just expelled 4 million Afghans in a period of months. Think about that, humanitarian costs. They're doing that in the winter and what those people are going through. But then also they did it because they are under extreme duress from Treaty Taliban Pakistan and various other groups that, that were part of their creation, the, the Frankenstein monster they created to use these groups as an arm of their foreign policy, which the Pakistani army still not stopped doing. But that's the danger is, and that's the lesson of 9-11, you know, and it's astounding to me how we forget that these challenges, security that develop abroad can only be dealt with at an exorbitant cost once they reach our shores. And a sustained engagement against Jihad's terrorists abroad is what's kept us safe since then. You know, I remember, you know, the Times Square bomber that failed, God, what year was that? Like, uh, 2016 maybe or 15 i mean the reason he failed was he didn't get the proper training because he was dodging u.s special operations and cia efforts in the pakistani border region you know and now safe haven and support base and that's when they become really dangerous they have access to revenue through the narcotics trade and other illicit activities and i, I think it's only amount of time before we see emerge another massive terrorist threat against our interests abroad which we're seeing with Iran inciting now and facilities abroad, but also in Europe. Remember ISIS, you know, we disengaged from Iraq. This is another failed lesson. It's crazy to me that we can't learn from even our most proximate experiences. Number 2010, Lloyd Austin, General Austin, Secretary Austin now, presided over the farewell ceremony of U.S. forces with a complete disengagement from Iraq. Vice President, then Vice President Biden was there. He called up President Obama and said, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war. Wars don't end when one party disengages. And then what you had after that is the Maliki government put in a series of, of sectarian, which then led to the conclusion among Sunni Arab communities that these jihadist terrorist organizations are, are their only patrons, their only protectors that are from you know complete evisceration. You have the rise of ISIS, which rapidly becomes the most destructive terrorist organization in history, recruiting in about a month's time, 40,000 people, taking over territory the size of Britain, inflicting horrible humanitarian catastrophe on Iraqis, Syrians, Yazidis, and then becoming the most destructive in just a two-year period, right? 95 attacks outside of that territory. Remember Belgium attacks the train station, the airport, Marseille, Paris, right? San Bernardino was an inspired attack, shooting down a Russian airline, right? I mean, they, they did all that, right? Because they had that base. And we didn't even learn from that. And the, the same people you know, who disengaged prematurely from Iraq, then made the same argument in Afghanistan. And just think about the arrogance of them telling us every day from the podium in the State Department or in the department, how smoothly it was going. You know, what a great logistical achievement it was. Hey, when you evacuate your military before civilians, how is that a success? We left hostages behind. I mean, it was crazy. It was an utter humiliating catastrophe. But, you know, this is a politics, right, that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so these people will just lie to us and tell us it was a great like, logistics achievement, mm -hmm. even military officers. The, I mean, the, the commander of Central Command said on national news that he was confident that we could partner with the Taliban for security, mm -hmm. you know, of our forces we departed. Are you kidding me, man? I mean, so I, I just think it was just an embarrassment, a catastrophe, and we have to understand the reality, first of all, 
And I make these arguments in the book, but the first argument to get to your question is, you know, it is a frontier. And we gave up that, I mean, important strategic position, you know. And then we built a $19 billion over-the-horizon counterterrorism facility in the Gulf, which has done one strike. And then we said we needed to get out of Afghanistan to free us up for China and the Taiwan Strait. Well, then we had to commit carriers, you know, to the Indian Ocean because we we didn't. Everything we did was just completely backwards. Mm -hmm. And what we were hearing was the opposite of reality. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask one more question. Ukraine, the Middle East, these are not the only conflicts, obviously. And we have one right now between Israel and Gaza on that conflict. And is yeah. there a way out? Well, it's a regional war. It's already a regional war. And it's a continuation of the war that Iran has been waging for over four decades, in which it's using proxy forces in the region to keep the Arab world perpetually weak and enmeshed in conflict, while it amasses a proxy army and terrorist organizations on the border of Israel with the idea of destroying Israel completely and killing all the Jews. And it's nothing less ambitious than that. And what you saw on October 7th, I think, was an operation that was green-lighted, planned, equipped, orchestrated by the Iranians. And again, the reason I think that they did it is because they thought they could get away with it based on perception of, of weakness. Weakness in Israel associated with the coalition government of Netanyahu and the, and the far-right parties there that had elicited a lot of popular associated with the judicial reform initiatives, reserve a pilot saying they're not going to go to duty. And they thought, okay, maybe Israelis are are finished like the rest of the decadent West. You know, we appear weak, obviously, for a number of reasons, the polarization in our society and so forth. But mainly is it the supplication to the Iranians who probably couldn't believe how much weakness we were projecting during the Biden administration in terms of not enforcing sanctions, which resulted in about $80 billion of, of inflow into Iran's coffers, right to the IRGC. You know, we continued to supplicate to them and, and really suffer the humiliation, not being able to talk to them directly and use the Russians as interlocutors to resurrect the Iran nuclear deal as they were conducting scores of attacks against our forces in the region. Over 100 attacks against our forces, to which respond, we responded across the Trump, to the end of the Trump administration, too. Right. And the attack on the Saudi oil fields and the shoot down of our drones and everything. We responded to three or four of those 100 or so attacks against us. So, of course, they're thinking, okay, now's the time to do it. I think Ayatollah Khamenei was looking at his bucket list, you know, he's in his 80s, and said, okay, destroy Israel. Hey, I'm going to cross that one off right now, because I don't think they'll be able to do a damn thing against us. Or there's going to be so much protest against their Israeli response as they activate their influence network of useful idiots on U.S. campuses, and more broadly through, you know, organizations like the Quincy Institute and this guy, Trita Parsi, and others that they'll be able to create a cacophony of voices to constrain Israel and to get them to stop as they did in the 2009 Castlet. When was that? Uh, in, in Gaza. Maybe it was 12, 12 Castlet. And so they thought they could be able to get away with it. What you're seeing now is the first phase of Iran's effort to expend every Palestinian and Arab life they can in the effort to destroy Israel. And you see that with the agitation in the West Bank the mobilization of their proxy army on the border, Israeli border in Syria, and the firing of missiles there and the then development of missile factories, some of them which have been struck recently. They're actually mobilizing our, our forces in, in Iran and moving them to the border of Israel. And then it's just a question, a matter of time, I believe, for when they, they unleash Hezbollah 
which they're probably holding back only to deter direct attacks on Iranian territory at this moment, you know, whether against nuclear and missile facilities or just reprisal attacks for what they're doing to us broadly in the region, mobilizing the Houthis against us, the firing of the missiles from the Houthis, the Houthis capturing of a of a vessel, firing on commercial vessels, Arabia and the Emirates. And what has been not covered in Iraq is Case Kazali and the other Iranian heads of militia have now gotten approved a bunch of sectarian policies that mirror the Maliki policies after 2010 that led to the rise of ISIS. The governor of Nineveh province, my old friend, Najim Abdullah Abed al-Jabori, who had fought against Mosul, entered his family special benefit parole status. They came to the United States in 2009, lived with us for six months, Iraqi family six, in the middle of an army post. People are like, what's going on over there? So, but they are all US citizens except him, homeowners in Northern Virginia, when Hyder al-Badi comes in, he said, hey, I need help because, you know, ISIS was taking over. He immediately goes back, helped lead the operations in Mosul, ultimate conciliator. Like He brings people together. He was the mayor of Talafra and chief of police when, was, when we were there. And he's done a phenomenal job. They just fired him last week. Mm-hmm. And that was the case Kazali and others making that happen. And he had to flee basically to the Kurdish region where they're also mobilizing Shia militia forces against the Kurdish regional government and uh, the Barzani clan right now, the KDP. Uh, they're doing that in alliance with the PUK. This is getting zero, zero. But it's part of the overall campaign that Iran is orchestrating. You know, and then how do we break that cycle? We have to act like we know what the return address is. I mean, we act like we don't know the return address. How long did it take the Biden administration to say, oh, I think Iran might have a role here? They were bending all over themselves. I mean, Admiral Kirby, you know, I mean, I can't take it anymore. I can't, I can't watch him anymore. But, you know, because it's just, it's just such bullshit, you know, and not say, well, we don't know if Iran really had a role. I mean, are you kidding me? Right. I mean, so I, I just think until we understand that we have to impose costs on Iran. You know, maybe not direct action, but you know, we have asymmetrical advantages, right? The IRGC killed 600 of our soldiers in southern Iraq. We didn't do anything. Why is there still an IRGC headquarters? They're using the Iranian Navy to put limpet mines and blow up oil tankers. Why does the Iranian Navy still exist? We have asymmetrical advantages. Why don't we use them? There have been now, I think, about 180 acts of war against us by Iranian proxies orchestrated by the IRGC. Why don't we act like those are maybe acts of war and respond accordingly? Why are we still allowing the circumvention of sanctions? Are there not secondary sanctions on Chinese banks that are engaged in buying more of their oil? Why are we allowing, and the Germans who who, who could reverse this, allowing the sunset of Iranian uh, weapons exports? So, I mean, I thought that was a pretty humorous juxtaposition. When Olaf Scholz arrives and his, his party has to hit the ground because of rocket strikes on Ben-Gurion Airport, and the Germans aren't doing anything to reimpose the, the weapons export sanctions on the Iranians. So why, I think we have really a two-point strategy we should implement with Iran. Stop being chumps and stop being whips. That would be the two-point strategy. Thank you, General. Okay, we're going to ask a few questions from the audience. And the first is from Aubrey, who's sitting right here. She's an Army veteran, and she's asking... How can the government and private tech companies improve cooperation for national security with regard to information and influence operations? Okay. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of cooperation is already ongoing, but I think that what we could do 
is use artificial intelligence related technologies and especially big data analytic tools and large language models against the threat that comes from those technologies when they're weaponizing information and fomenting disinformation. I'm thinking of a company that I don't know enough about, but if you're familiar with Blackbird AI, for example, is a company that operates. And then, of course, there are others who do, and I'm an advisor to this one, but I think the world of them is why I'm doing it, who help harden enterprises against espionage and maybe infiltration of algorithms or use of algorithms and so forth. They're called Strider Intelligence or Technologies. So I think the private sector is kind of the key to it because I don't think the government has the capacity to do it, you know, to deal with the complexity of the threat, logical expertise, and then of course bumps into all sorts of legal issues and privacy issues and so forth. So I think what uh, Jen Easterly has done at CISA is phenomenal. She's great. And I've known her for years. She's hyper competent and, and the way that she's convening her board with Lisa Einstein, my old research assistants, you know, uh, who's running that for her. I mean, uh, I think that identifying ways to cooperate more effectively is great. I think the new laws and regulations on the book to direct companies to report it, like, you know, is important so we can understand the threat better. And then finally, I think the other way is to go on the offensive, you know, and not with our own disinformation, but just with like reality, with a different perspective, you know. And hey, if you're going to do it to us, we're going to do it to you. Vladimir Putin or Ayatollah Khamenei, I mean, figure out a way to get through their firewalls or Xi Jinping and get alternative information, even in the hardest place to do that in the North, you know, in, in North Korea. And I think that what we could do is turn the game on them, because I do think we have a lot of advantages from you know, our creativity. And of course, you know, they're, I mean, because they're so uptight, man. I mean, the Chinese are you can't have an image of Winnie the Pooh, really? Come on. I mean, you can, I mean, there's a lot of material there, right? I mean, that you could use. I think satire and and humor is a good way at times to really irk hypersensitive authoritarian leaders. <laughs> I mean, South Park does a great job <laughs> on all this, you know. All right. We've got a question from Greg Smear, and he says, how important is it for the intelligence community and the DOD to leverage those satellite constellation capabilities versus building their own exquisite systems. Yeah, it's, it's super important. I think it's already happening, isn't it? It's already happening de facto in terms of subscriptions to planet and all the, you know, in terms for surveillance capabilities. And then, and then of course, for communications, military related communications rides on a lot of commercial satellites already. I think that everybody understands Spacecom, everybody understands that the reliance on small numbers of large satellites that are prone to catastrophic failure is a really bad idea, especially after the weaponization of space by China and Russia, others too. And it's going to be important for us to be able to reseed those capabilities quickly with the kind of satellites we see now in low orbit and some of the newer technologies at, at higher orbit, you know, that are easier to put back in, into position. And then our own defensive capabilities of those satellites, you know, be it this and can evade the killer satellites and so forth. I think all that's, you know, immensely important. It also has to be seen holistically, I think, in connection with undersea cable security and so forth. I mean, I think Russia's been cutting cables, man. I mean, have you seen some? I mean, that's like underreported. I don't know why it's underreported. I guess I do know why it's underreported. I can imagine. But there have been, you know, Chinese flagged vessels operating in areas where undersea cables have been cut and at critical moments, you know, and there was suspicion anyway, is that there are Russian operators on those ships cutting those cables. Mm -hmm. 
All right, last question is from Jin Tran. And Jin asks, what's something you hope the U.S. public thinks more about as we navigate the two current wars? Yeah, I think I hope they think more about how weakness is provocative. And if we want these wars to expand, hard power like really matters. It really matters. It matters in those two theaters in terms of the, you know, the giving less constrained support to the Ukrainians or to maybe demonstrating to the Iranians like, hey, the gig's up. We know what the return address is or going after their, their threat network in the region more holistically. But it also matters in terms of conflicts we hope don't cascade out of this, which I think is even more dangerous than the Taiwan Strait right now. And we haven't really done what we need to do with the sense of urgency, right? I mean, we're spending historic lows as a percentage of GDP on defense still, even though the Ukrainian war has exposed the fragility and critical supply chains and the lack of capacity in our defense industrial base. And so there's a lot more to be done with a much higher degree of urgency. You know, I think we're in a situation that George Marshall observed in the 30s with the gathering storms in Europe. These are these are storms that are happening, but there are others that are gathering. And he said, hey, when you have the time, you don't have the money. And when you have the money, you don't have the time. And I think that there are all sorts of arguments about why not to invest more in defense, but we could afford four percent. And I think that would be enough actually to address the backlog and 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 some of the technologies we haven't fielded. Drone defenses, for example, swarm drone or undersea drone capabilities, sophisticated and ubiquitous electromagnetic warfare capabilities, directed energy capabilities. I mean, all this is really kind of mature and ready to field. And then we have capacity issues. We don't have enough ships and airplanes and troops and marines and you know, I, I think that this is coming to time, obviously, when we're having recruiting issues. I think that's another related problem. It's related to the kind of the polarization issue. And I think efforts on both parties to politicize the military. And we have to really work on that. So anyway, I just think the weakness and the perception of weakness is provocative and associated with that hard power matters. And and we have to do more to bolster, I think, our defense capabilities, mm-hmm. broadly defined, including the industrial base and and making our supply chains more resilient. Folks who are joining us, a lot of this conversation is based on the general's book, Battlegrounds, and his podcast, Battlegrounds. Highly, highly encourage all of you to read the book and listen to the podcast. General, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Great to be with everybody. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.